0: Hello everyone, welcome to Dan's Nose History here. Today I'm sitting on the banks of uh, the Eure River, just outside York in the north of England, a place called Boroughbridge, where there's a great Roman settlement, one of the most important settlements of what is now the northeast of England, but also where in 1322 the Plantagenets fought a bloody internecine battle. Now this is not the Wars of the Roses, this is a dress rehearsal for the Wars of the Roses. Thomas from the House of Lancaster, grandson of the King, fought the forces loyal to his royal cousin, Edward II. And the rebels were smashed on the wooden bridge here, just metres away from me. A phalanx of steel-tipped spears drove the rebels back. The longbows tore into their cavalry and Lancaster sought refuge in the church before being dragged out, taken before his royal cousin and beheaded. It would take another hundred years for the Plantagenets to finish the job and completely destroy each other in bloody war. But that is another story. I am here because I'm on my tour of the UK. Uh, There are still tickets available, as they say. Yes, there are. (laughs) There are lots of tickets still available. I'm in York tonight. And I'm up in Scotland and then travelling around the north of England for much of next week. So lots of podcasts, lots of fun pictures going up on social media coming out of that trip. Today on the podcast, we have got the veteran, the royalty, the Plantagenet royalty of BBC journalism, Misha Glennie. He's been on Radio 4 millions of times. He's an expert in the Balkans, the history of Yugoslavia, the breakup of Yugoslavia. He is an expert on the stories we tell each other about the creation of nation-states. And finally, he's turned his attention, and that of his brilliant producer, to The Invention of Britain, a show about how this polyglot, multi-ethnic, multilingual country came to be and play such an important part. In world affairs. You can listen to that show at the moment on BBC Radio 4, and of course, it will be available as a podcast to download internationally as well. Talking about how states come to be and how they convince the citizens within them to show loyalty to that state is, I think, one of the most interesting things that we can study in the past. This was a fun conversation. Enjoy. I feel they had the hand of history on our shoulders. All This tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated.
1: One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change
0: the world. Mr thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Good to have radio royalty in, on the pod. <laughs>
1: I don't think it's radio royalty, but uh, I've done a bit of radio over the years.
0: Radio plutocracy. <laughs> I don't know, anyway, whatever. So tell me, Dickies, you have done this radio over the years, but this feels like a bit of a For me, as soon as I saw this title this new series, I thought, oh, this is a humdinger. Tell everyone what it's about.
1: Well, it's called The Invention of Britain. I and my producer, Miles Ward, who's a very, very gifted producer, we have done several invention ofs before. In fact, we we put it all in a podcast called How to Invent a Country. So we've done Germany for France, Italy, Netherlands, Spain, USA and Brazil and we were always conscious of the fact that we never even discussed the possibility of doing Britain and that's, that's partly because if like me you do, you, you do most of your work in foreign countries, you feel much more comfortable about presenting foreign countries to a British audience than actually talking about something which people think they know a lot about. And that was one of the most astonishing things about doing the invention of Britain, is that so many of our beliefs about history, this is uh, talking about me and, and, and Miles, the producer, were undermined by doing a research of trying to establish what Britain is, how it came about, when it came about. And what the relations within that country are and what the historical relations between Britain and particularly Europe and the United States are and the colonies.
0: Okay, so I ask you about what you now think we all misconceptions. And was one of them, this kind of slightly nagging feeling, actually whereas it's clear that Germany was just bolted together from loads of silly little regional... Britain does have a sort of time-hallowed ancient quality to it, and it's been around for Was that a sort of naughty little thought of yours? What what misconceptions do you have?
1: Well, uh, that it doesn't have a time-hallowed identity. In fact, the British identity is a very fluid one. It's a sort of shapeshifter, and it changes really all the time and only comes into being... Quite late on, because it's only really with the Act of Union in 1707 between England and Scotland that you get a Britain for the first time that is somehow constitutionally anchored. Before that, it's a concept which floats up now and then from the Roman period through till 1707, but it never really gels. And certainly constitutionally, it has no validity whatsoever. So first of all, it's a relatively recent thing. Secondly, even that recent thing changes. Sometimes Ireland, for example, is in Britain. Sometimes it's outside. Sometimes it breaks up, of course, in 1922. So things change dramatically. And of course, what's interesting is what the relationships between the various constituent parts of Britain are. And I think... I mean, that's where I would, I would start, is, is the question which bugged me as we researched this was, why is it that the centre of Britain is England? Why is it that any discussion about Britain, you're looking at Scots-English relationships, you're looking at Welsh-English relationships, and you're looking at Irish-English relationships? What you're not doing very much is looking at Irish-Welsh relations, or Scots-Cornish relations, or something like that. So we went back to try to identify why is it that England defines Britain.
0: And is it Alfred... Edward the Elder and Athelstan.
1: It is Athelstan. It is Athelstan. Although yes. leading up to Alfred Alfred the Great. So Athelstan and his great victory at the Battle of Brunanburh, or however we pronounce it. Because Wherever it may be. nobody has discovered where this mythical battle although, took, took watch place. watch this
0: space. In tw- History is on the case in 2019, everybody. But yeah, keep going.
1: That's absolutely fascinating. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll have to talk to you afterwards, Dan, so you can tell me what you know. But anyway, so... What happens here is that Athelstan, actually, and this is before the battle, really, succeeds in uniting first Wessex and Mercia, and then fairly soon after, he integrates Kent as well. And at the same time, you see London consolidating itself as the sort of vague administrative and economic centre. And what you have with the merger of Wessex, Mercia and Kent is the most fruitful agricultural land on the British Isles. Very, very concentrated. So this gives England an unprecedented economic power that it is then able to use to finalise the sort of last bit of the puzzle as far as it's concerned, which is the integration of Northumbria, getting rid of the Vikings and having what is the strategic bridgehead to the border with the Scots under its control. So you have agricultural, economic, administrative and military power centralising At a very early stage, even compared to the rest of Europe. And this is why England defines Britain. So it goes back to the 10th century. Now, there were ups and downs, as you will discover when you listen to the programme, all along the way. But from then on, the question is, how does England respond, react and interact with the other nations in Britain.
0: It's a fascinating thing about England is England is very ancient, isn't it? And is a pretty successful state in terms of, I'm trying to think now, since the reconquest of of Northumbria or the conquest of Northumbria, haven't been that many breakaway ...movements within the space that is now England, have there? No, that's
1: that's right. You have really Henry VIII's reign is when you get the most serious challenge... ...which is the Pilgrim of Grace up in the north. So there's always a possibility that the north of England will develop its own identity... ...and it has an ancient seat in, in York... ...and at some point there are discussions about whether York might become the capital of England... As a way of integrating the north with the south, um, but the uh, the northern rebellions and uprisings never really succeed. It's it's slightly a mystery as to to why they don't, and it's probably down to to leadership. Uh, but after that, the basic coherence of England remains. Bit of problems with the the, the Cornish now and then, and then uh, there is sort of uncertainty about borders both with Scotland and with with Wales but essentially from the 16th century onwards even though at that point under Henry VIII England is within the European context a sort of second rate power one of the important things about the Tudors is because Henry breaks with Rome and therefore becomes the first major coherent power to challenge Rome's monopoly and adopt Reformation ideologies. And then, of course, you start seeing the the slow but steady expansion of English sea power. That means that in the 16th century, you're seeing England transition away from being a second-rate power into being a power that can actually challenge the supremacy of Spain and France
0: well there that 's let 's get the Linda Colley point then the the British idea of Britishness and to what extent is was Britishness then as a project a response to Catholic powers on the continent that look quite threatening so Spain and france and and the, the and turning this northern archipelago into a into a superpower to take them on and and steal their colonies across the seas.
1: well, this is where Britain goes wrong, and Britain goes right at the same time, so What happens, of course, is the early 17th century, you have the unification of the three kingdoms under a monarch. So constitutionally, England, Scotland and Ireland uh, remain separate kingdoms, but they happen to have the same king. James I of England and the six of the Scots uh, still claimed also to be the King of France. And in fact, that claim was retained by British monarchs up to the year 1800, ludicrously. Um, but anyway, but the point is you have those three constituent parts, which would later become constituent parts of Britain. And of course, Wales is administratively part of England at this time, de facto. And what you see over the next 150 years is you see the Reformation succeeding in Scotland, succeeding obviously in England, although as we know from Elizabeth's reign, there was a permanent fear of Catholic revival. We also know that the fear of Catholicism played a part in what we now call the War of the Three Kingdoms, more of that later. And uh, then also with James II, there was this fear that there could be a Catholic revival within England. But above all else, the fear was Ireland, because Ireland did not succumb to the Reformation. It had uh, Protestant elements, first of all, from the English who, after the Normans, started colonizing parts of the east of Ireland. And then, of course, in the late 16th century with the uh, plantation of Munster and then the plantation of Ulster in the first half of the 17th century, you have Presbyterians and Protestants coming in from Scotland and England who just uh, take up a lot of the land but do not succeed in engaging the local Irish population with Reformation ideas. They remain Catholic. So you have this huge Catholic population, and in those days, Catholic to a slightly nervous, anxious English monarch means one thing, the possibility of penetration through Spain or France and the destruction of uh, the Three Kingdoms.
0: Speaking of the destruction of the Three Kingdoms, just do talk to me a bit about the 17th century, when what we used to call the English Civil War is now being seen increasingly as a war of the Three Kingdoms.
1: Well, this is astonishing because I was taught at A-level, in A-level history, I was taught about the English Civil War. It was taught in fairly binary terms that you had a monarch who believed in the divine right of kings, flirted with Catholicism, certainly with high Anglicanism, and against this were sort of earthy, doughty parliamentarians who believed in the sort of, you know, nascent rights of men. I use the gender advisedly. So it was all fairly straightforward, and they met on the battlefield, and eventually um, the parliamentarians won, and, of course, they executed Charles. And then what I discovered researching the invention of Britain is this is a completely an Utterly fallacious interpretation of history. To call it the English Civil War is the first mistake. This is now referred to generally as the War of Three Kingdoms because these series of wars started in Scotland. What happened in Ireland played an incredibly important role. And then, in a way, they spilt over into England and triggered this fight between the king and the parliamentarians. Now, what you saw in the War of the Three Kingdoms, was almost a, an echo of the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War had raged in Europe primarily on the territory of what is now Germany, from 1618 to, to 1648, and what this was about was the whether uh, a ruler could determine what uh, religion his or her people followed or not, but it was also about the emerging network of great power relations in Europe. And they solved the problem... Both problems, in a sense, for a period of time in 1648 with a series of treaties known as the Treaty of Westphalia, which sets up the modern state system. And what's happening in the Three Kingdoms at the same time is is you get a kind of knock-on effect ideologically of what was going on in Europe. And it highlights existing tensions within the Three Kingdoms and also you have again The fear that Ireland might be seen as a way of outside powers infiltrating those three kingdoms. It is incredibly bloody. It is uh, very nasty. And when I learnt it as the English Civil War at school, admittedly that is now a very long time ago, you got tacked on at the end Cromwell then went to Ireland to sort out the rebellious Irish and uh, a few bad things happened, um, largely in Drogheda. And that's it. But it wasn't seen as very significant. Now, what this does, and this is when we were making the series, was really, really interesting, was he realised that depending on where you are in the British Isles... People celebrate completely different events, events which have very little relation to to one another. So for the Scots, it's always Bannockburn and Robert the Bruce and the genuine assertion of a Scottish independence which lasts for a very long, long time. The English tend to celebrate Waterloo, which isn't a big deal anywhere else in the uh, in the country and of course they tend to see it exclusively as an English stroke British success although and rather downplaying the Prussians vital role but that's an entirely other story. The Irish in the south 1916, the Easter Rising, an absolute catastrophe at the time for Irish nationalism, but that doesn't matter. It's been commodified into history. That, the potato famine, of course, of the 1840s, which we don't celebrate here in England at all, barely know when it took place. And then in Wales, 1282, when Edward I went to Wales, defeated the disparate Welsh forces and set up his range of Castles, particularly around the north of Wales, the so called pure Wales, that date is seared into the memory of all Welsh people, but particularly those who who are Welsh speakers, uh, a population which is growing at the moment quite significantly. Whereas if you ask people in England when it was that the English subdued the Welsh, uh, more or less finally, they won't have a clue. They simply won't know. So we have very different iconic moments in history, whether we're Scots, English, Welsh, or
0: Irish. More from the legend Misha Glenny in a second. Just to let you know, we've still got our code, POD4, running, P-O-D-4. If you use that code at checkout, historyhit.tv, the world's best digital history channel, you will receive 30 days for free, And then just one pound, euro or dollar for the first four months. It's unbelievably cheap. It takes you through to the summer for less than a pint of beer. So go to historyhit.tv, use the code POD4 at checkout. Here's more from Misha Glennie. Now you have made all these other programmes looking at other countries that are all polyglot countries as they tend to be. Did you come to this thinking... Britain would be sort of more homogenous and have an internal coherence, more so than Yugoslavia and all these other amazing places you study. And were you quite surprised by that funny, by talking to people and realising that we all hold on to very different culture and historical traditions?
1: I, I wasn't that surprised because I know Scotland relatively well. And the importance of Scotland is, is that they retain certain institutions – whether it's in finance, whether it's in the law, whether it's in education, as we know, they have their own health service as well, although obviously that comes later. But the reason why that's important is those institutions are a powerful engine of cultural transmission of the fact that the Scots have a separate identity. Nonetheless, the Scots were extremely well integrated into Britain after the union for a century and a half or so for the, for the following reason, that, you know, people can have different cultural identities, but they can also be very pragmatic. So there was, in 1707, when we look at the act of union between England and, and Scotland, neither side really feel that enthusiastic about coming together into a single state of Britain, But both sides have powerful things pushing them towards that. If the English, you have a problem of the succession at the time. And um, if people have seen the film The Favourite, the, that actually touches upon some of these issues. The fact that they can't find a Protestant issue at the time. And they're frightened, the English, that a Catholic might be able to lay claim to the English throne. So that is a very powerful way of pushing the English towards union with Scotland, which for various reasons will help to solve that problem, the Scots on their part, who are very resistant to the idea of voting their parliament out of existence, which is part of the deal, and having a a much less of a voice in London than they then had in Scotland... But they were pushed towards Union because of the fact that the country was broke. Remember, before the Union, you had two entirely separate economic entities, Scotland and England, and there were trade barriers between the two of them. And this meant that Scotland couldn't trade and couldn't exploit the opportunities offered by the colonial markets that the English were opening up left, right and centre – And so the Scots tried at the end of the the 17th century to set up their own colony in what is now Panama. And uh, basically almost the entire country lost its shirt on the failed Darien scheme. And so the English said, OK, well, look, if you join with us, we'll give you access to our colonial markets. And although there was reluctance and although there was still a Jacobite resistance in Scotland, that's Catholic resistance to the, to the union with England, basically the uh, promise of those access to those colonial markets won the day. And this set up Scotland for one of the most remarkable intellectual flowerings in modern European history, which was the Scottish uh, Enlightenment. Now, so the Scots embraced colonialism Wholeheartedly, and as we are now beginning to discover, they embraced slavery wholeheartedly, as well. And the Scots made a hell of a lot of money out of the union with England, and of course they started populating the professions in England. So why is it that law, that journalism, medicine, all sorts of professions like that are dominated by Scots? Politics as as well, or at least you have a, a, an outsized influence of Scots. In London, it's because they embrace the Union and its possibilities. As long as England can offer Scots a sort of, uh, you know, an incentive to remain in the Union, then that Union is pretty strong. Once the English can no longer continue to offer significant benefits to the Scots, then what you will see and what we have seen. Is a rise in Scottish nationalism and the move towards independence. And in that sense, the British Union is contingent on everyone making money out of it or having, deriving some benefit.
0: So, I, last few minutes, really, last 10 minutes, I'd like to ask you, because you've got this remarkable, you, you've, you've studied so many different countries in, in your career through this lens. Is there a similarity? Do you recognize the same sort of stuff? Are they all just sort of pragmatic, botched to patch together, and and as long as everyone's thriving economically, they survive? Or are there some that have a stronger uh, romantic, poetic, philosophical, or geographical narrative to them?
1: I, I think I'd say three things about that. First of all, the importance of religion in European history cannot be underestimated. And the echoes of it today, even though it may not manifest itself, obviously, as religion, its echoes are, are still there. And this was as true for England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland as it was for the Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, Spain, France, Germany, Austria, etc, etc, the Balkans, wherever you look, religion is absolutely critical. But as European powers start to strengthen and expand. Then competing with those religious interests, you see state interests. And this is why, for me, the pivotal period in European history is the Thirty Years' War, because that's when state interests start to encroach very, very clearly on religious interests. And the state starts overcoming its Uh, commitment to this or that religion. That's particularly true when you look at France. But otherwise, there is a significant cultural difference within Europe, between Northern Europe and Southern Europe, divided largely by the Alps and the Pyrenees, but with France acting as a sort of pivot between the two, and that is you get... The sort of benefits of industrialization are spread much more thickly across northern Europe than they are across southern Europe, with the exception of of northern Italy, which you could say is a sort of honorary member of northern Europe. And two very distinct cultures align themselves with religion, so largely Catholic in the south, largely Protestantism of of some sort in the north and this divide between north and south which is one of the things that the European Union has tried to overcome is still very very present every time you to go to the council of ministers and uh, and listen to the various positions of member states of the The one thing that I haven't mentioned about that is the whole issue, which of course is critical for European history, of what goes on in the east from Russia through Central Europe down to Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. But I would say that in terms of those countries that I've looked at so far, the religious question is paramount and it then melts into the issue of state power, colonial interests, and great power competition of the 19th and 20th centuries.
0: Okay, so we got religion is declining across Europe, so in some cases catastrophically fast. We've been hearing for the last 30 years, well there's no great evidence, we have, the last 30 years have been saying there's a, the nation-state is in crisis as well. So states, so national, the post-Westphalian states, I hate that expression, and, and religions both in crisis. In, in, you've been studying these now for, for years. What is the future of our nation-states? What is the future of Britain, France, Spain and Germany?
1: Well, we're at a very, very interesting moment because although we've been predicting the sort of success of multinational corporations, not of institutions, there's a general agreement that the United Nations is in a state of permanent crisis and its influence is declining rapidly, but certainly in terms of all the big natural resource firms, and now added to them the immense power of the digital corporates, there is certainly, clearly, a transnational power and influence which nation-states are finding it very difficult to keep up with. But One shouldn't underestimate the residual power of nation-states, and particularly if you look at a country like China, which is the second most powerful country in the world for a whole range of reasons, it is very clear that the state demands subordination from corporates, both domestic and, and foreign. If you look at India, the state has a considerable amount of control over what happens within its borders. Brazil, another country which is absolutely critical to the world, nonetheless retains many of the mechanisms of economic and political autonomy. They may not manage them particularly successfully at times, but uh, nonetheless, they're there. They are not owned by Google. They are not owned by the United States. We see ourselves in a permanent state of tension at the moment between supranational organizations and nation states. Now, of course, this is very acute in Europe at the moment, uh, not just because of Brexit, although Brexit is its most obvious manifestation, but also because of various... Strands of nationalism that are emerging in other European Union member states. Whether it is going to end, nobody can say. Just as if anyone now tells you what's going to happen with Brexit, if anyone says anything with any certainty, you know that they're talking nonsense, because we simply we've been through Wonderland and we're now we've now walking through the looking glass and we have absolutely no idea where we are. We certainly don't know where the rabbit hole is. <laughs>
0: I could talk, I mean, it's, it's such a frustrating thing. Cause I talk to you all day, Misha, but the, I think I'm going to have to leave you now because you've got to get on with your day. But we didn't even talk about your other expertise, which is cyber security, which of course is a fairly hot topic at the yes, moment. Yes,
1: I do quite a lot of cyber. There is one thing I ought to say about the, the invention of Britain, which I haven't mentioned, which was really interesting, is is I used it as an opportunity to go and research the glennies of Newry County Down. Because we, my grandfather.
0: Very near the uh, Irish border. which Very, talk, very yeah. near.
1: It's a hop, skip, yes, and a jump. Yeah. And that was a really interesting way into the whole Irish question because the Glennies were Presbyterian stroke Church of Ireland and very influential in Newry. And it turns out that, you know, there was this whole history which I didn't know about, which is. Uh,
0: most peculiar. Yeah, well, dude, try having a great-grandfather as a general on the song. <laughs> <Then we'll>, uh... <laughs> OK, so, Mr. <laughs> Glenny, thank you very much. Your wonderful series is How Can People Get Hold of It?
1: Uh, well, it's going to be broadcast from the end of February. I'm not quite sure what the the date is. or I think around the 24th of February we'll have the first episode. And then it's in successive weeks, and it'll be four weeks after that from the 24th and of course it will run up to the 20th the magical 29th of march when we either will or won't leave the european union and, and i'm uh, sure they'll release it as a podcast as well. and then it will go under the how to invent a country podcast rubric that we have for the bbc
0: great and which country's next surely china come on the story of
1: well we've been discussing this we've put there's poland which is yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. there's mexico which yeah. is important there's indonesia there's, there's another good one. One. Good one there's China
0: funnily enough every single country has, Is, it, has, has its
1: it, own has,
0: has its story <laughs> of how it's come to this that's the point of history that's why I listen to this podcast thank you very much Mr Glenny. Dan thank you I feel the hand of history on our shoulders all this tradition of ours our school history our songs this part of the history of our country all were gone and finished and
1: liquidated one child One teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world.
0: He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.